You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I'm one of those people who thinks retirement needs to be retired. I don't think in general retirement is a healthy thing to do, to stop all work-related activities. Now, does that mean that you work 40 hours a week? No, it means that people are living more cyclic lives. They are taking work and they're taking the concept of retirement and they're mixing it up throughout the lifespan. It means that people have a chance to reinvent themselves and reinvention is a huge word. You probably have a solid plan for retirement, but you still might be wondering, did I miss something? Is there something more I can do right now to secure my future? It is time to find out. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor today. Hi everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining us today on Her Money. If you have been listening for maybe half a minute, then you probably know my beef about retirement. And it's not that people don't love dreaming about it or thinking about it or even talking about it. It's that so many people just refuse to get specific. I come from journalist land, and so I'm a believer that when you're thinking about retirement, you need to think like a journalist. And that means thinking about the W's. When are you going to retire? Where are you going to retire? Who are you going to retire with? How are you going to live in retirement? And so on and so on. And yes, you may be 30 or 40 or 50 or almost 58 like me, and these things can and will change over time. But unless you get specific, you aren't going to know how much you need to save and how you should be investing it in order to make whatever retirement you're looking for happen. And I have to say, now is a really, really good time to take a look at where you stand. We've had a little bit of space and a little bit of time to reflect on the pandemic, which took millions of women out of the workforce. Just 41% of women were able to save for retirement every month of the pandemic compared to 58% of men. That is a huge difference. And so the fact that we're coming out of these last few years with an even wider retirement savings gap than we previously had, I guess, should not be all that surprising. And in 2019, even before the pandemic, a study from Bank of America found women already were retiring with an average of $70,000 less than men. Fast forward to right now, and we are dealing with inflation, a volatile stock market, sky-high mortgage rates, a looming recession. So what does all the craziness swirling around us mean for retirement? And for those of you who are already retired, how can you protect that nest egg that you spent so many years growing? Yes, retirement is more than just a dollar figure. It's about where you want to live and how you want to spend your time and your dreams and your goals that you want to pursue. So you have to think about making sense of those priorities in order to thrive during those last few decades. And they will be decades, as my guest knows. Maddie Dykdwald has spent years, decades, tackling these questions. And she is here to help all of us better understand what we want in retirement and how we get it. In 1986, Maddie and her husband, Ken, founded a think tank called AgeWave. And AgeWave is really in the business of understanding the attitudes, the expectations, hopes, and fears of our growing aging population. They have spearheaded dozens of studies that you have heard me cite time and time again on this podcast. They've advised more than half of the Fortune 500. Maddie is also the author of a number of books on aging, gender, and the economy, and she is the co-founder of the nonprofit Women Against Alzheimer's. Maddie, welcome. Thank you, Jean. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So I first just want to start with talking about how we talk about 
aging. I mean, for some people, and I, I kind of think I'm over it, but for some people, getting older is still a touchy subject, even though it shouldn't be. And there are a lot of stereotypes about what it looks like. How do you think the language of aging has evolved? Yeah, that's a great question to start with. So let's remember that aging itself, it's not something that just happens when you turn 50 or 60 or 70. It's a lifelong process. It actually begins in the womb and it goes all the way to the day you die. So if you're not getting older, you're dead. So let's keep that in mind. Second, let's remember that there's three different kinds of aging. There's the chronologic aging, and that's, now how many birthdays have you had? How many years have you lived on the planet? Then there's the physical aging, and that's what we oftentimes think about as being sort of the downside of aging, the decline, the physical decline that we can all experience. But there's also a kind of upside of aging, and that's psychological aging. Now, let's be honest, (laughs) not everybody matures as they get older, but if you are lucky enough to mature, you gain certain things as you get older. You gain emotional intelligence, you gain resilience, you gain maybe even gain a little bit of wisdom. So, I personally prefer, and what I notice is a lot of social scientists agree with me, let's talk about aging as longevity. Now, longevity, suddenly you think like on a positive note about aging. Longevity holds possibilities, whereas aging, we've come to associate like negative things with it. Like, for instance, we have this whole product line called anti-aging. Right. That's exactly what I was thinking about. I mean, I got to tell you, right before I got on this podcast, I was making an appointment with the dermatologist because, you know, every six months I just, I'm due. And, And there are so many different products that are meant to keep us anti-aging, meant to keep us from looking our age, looking older than we are. And that sort of casts it, I don't know if it's negative or if it's positive. I mean, I have to say, I I just had the experience of seeing pictures from my 40th high school reunion, which I sadly missed. And by and large, I thought people looked terrific. And you see lots of actors and actresses who are out there hawking these anti-aging products, and they all understandably look great. I mean, have we turned the corner on this at all, or are we still in this race against time? Well, let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, we all want to look and feel as healthy and vital and attractive as we can as we get older. So that's a gift. Well, not everybody does, but I mean, most of us really do want to embrace our aging in a positive way because the other side of that does not look very good at all. But to call it anti-aging and to try to reverse the signs, I think of it a little bit differently. I think, well, as I get older, I want to recognize the fact that if I eat a certain way and I exercise every day and I hydrate and see my dermatologist every six months, I'm probably going to be healthier, more vital, and it will reflect itself in how I look. What do you think about, and I'm going off on a complete and total tangent here, (laughs) but what do you think about the trends these days to embrace the more natural form of aging? I'm thinking about, I read stories in the newspaper about women who during the pandemic stopped coloring their hair or who are, you know, I mean, I kind of think if I knew I was going to have really pretty silver gray hair, I might do it. But I, you know, the kinds of grays that I get are, you know, they stick out all over the place. And I'm definitely covering them up as long as I can. Where do you shake out on this? Okay, that is a great question. And I think that it's important that people everyone, every woman, every man, but especially women, because women get a little bit more ageism coming their way than men do. And I think it's really important for everyone to do it the way they feel best. Like, for instance, I agree with you. My hair color, if I let it go gray, 
I look horrible. And that doesn't make me feel confident and happy. So I don't do it. However, I think that there is a spectrum of ways that we can all age and that that's good, that we need to embrace the fact that we all want to do it differently and not to judge people who go one way or the other in terms of how they talk about, think about, and react to their own aging. Like, for example, Andy McDowell, the actress and model, she recently went gray and her manager told her, no, 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 don't do that. You won't get any more parts. But in fact, it's had the opposite effect. Her career has actually done better as she's gone gray. And of course, she looks absolutely gorgeous with gray hair. She looks absolutely gorgeous always, always. I rewatched a part of Groundhog Day the other day (laughs) and was just reminded and how beautiful she is. Let's talk a little bit about your work with Age Wave and how that started for you and your husband, Ken. You founded Age Wave in 1986. You could not see retirement coming down the pike at that point. So how old were you (laughs) and what made you look that far ahead? Well, good question. So I'm 72 right now. So if you do the math, you can figure out that I was in my early 30s. And Ken was too. I mean, we were both the same age. And we looked at this as sort of a trend. We both saw ourselves as futurists. And Ken had been working in the field of aging, looking at how people could age the best way possible. I was really fascinated by this whole idea of demographic trends. Now, I know it makes me sound like a total geek, and I guess I am, but... It's all right. We love the data. We love the data. I loved demographics. And why did I love it? I loved it because if you look at the demographics, it kind of gives you a window into the future. And I love opening that window into the future. So Ken and I were looking at the data and what we saw was pretty fascinating. If you think back to the 1980s, people were not having babies the way they did back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So we saw our fertility rates going down. And at the same time, people were through health and well-being and lifestyle shifts, they were actually living longer and they were living better in that second half of life. So we saw the big growth in the population for the late 1980s into the 90s and into the 21st century was going to take place with older adults. That's where the action was. And we also saw that it was a different kind of older adult. They had more money They were more willing to go out and have a good time and travel and move and spend time with their grandchildren and do all the things that makes that part of life really a terrific part of life. So we saw the trends and the trends brought us into the field. And at first, frankly, we felt like we were the Paul Revere's of aging. We went into corporate companies and we told them, The aging is coming. Here's what it looks like. And it looks different than you think. And then, of course, over time, we started really probing into what is aging? How is it changing? Uh, Not just the positive side of aging, which at the time felt really new and exciting, but also what are some of the fears of aging and how do we cope with them effectively? And, you know, we've experienced some of that ourselves. We, both Ken and I, have seen our moms cope with Alzheimer's disease. And that is not a pretty picture. I know that one of the things that you've really dug into is where we started this conversation with the fact that retirement specifically is very different than it used to be. Can you talk a little bit about that? What do people want these days? Yeah, great question. So if you were to open up Webster's Unabridged Dictionary to the word retirement, and I am not making this up, it would say to disappear, to go away, to withdraw. And in fact, that's what in the past a lot of retirees wanted to do. They wanted to kind of wind it down before they died. I mean, very honestly, that's kind of what it looked like. And it made a lot of sense because they only had a few years in retirement. So 
you know, that's the way it kind of went. However, today, the average retiree spends more than 20 years in retirement. That's a long time. And they see it quite differently. They see it as a completely new chapter in life. And they say, and this is from our studies of As you mentioned, we do a lot of studies, and we recently did the series of studies with Edward Jones as our partner and the Harris Polls. And what people told us in focus groups was that it was about freedom from and freedom to. So freedom from the having to punch a clock at work, having to raise a family, having to care for your children while you might also be caring for adult parents and grandparents. So that was the freedom from. What was it freedom to? To live your dreams, to reinvent yourself, and to focus on the things that really matter in life. And by the way, they told us the most important thing in life was to focus on family and friends. That engagement is really important, the social component. In fact, I know that your studies have pointed out there are four different pillars of retirement and that you need all four if you're going to have happiness in a well-rounded couple of decades and their health, family, as you said, purpose, and finances. Where do people get it right? And where do they get it wrong? When it comes to those pillars, where do they miss the boat? Mm. Well, first of all, we didn't just make this stuff up. This was based on the research that we've done into retirement and how it's changing and how we need to really experience this new retirement. And what retirees themselves told us And that's the important thing because these retirees, they have had the experience of retirement. They told us that there were four essential ingredients. So yes, the money is really important, but it's not just about the money. It's about, as you pointed out, health, family, purpose, and finance. And what was so interesting to us is that we got to see that all four pillars are equally important to retirees. We also got to see that all four pillars are interconnected and they all influence each other. Just as an example, healthcare, the cost of healthcare up until recently when inflation took over, the cost of healthcare was the biggest financial worry of retirees, showing you that connection. I already mentioned the fact that older adults really, really focus on the importance of family to them and family and friends. They told us that their sense of purpose actually came from spending time with family and friends. So these things really influence each other. However, what we also saw in our study was that pre-retirees they're not planning effectively for all four pillars, and they may be caught short as they begin to enter into retirement. Did you find any particular gaps for those pre-retirees? And when you look at at the pillars or when you look at the areas, were there specific holes that you could point to time and time again? (sighs) Yeah, there were holes actually throughout, but the one pillar that they're most likely to spend a little bit of time planning for is actually financial well-being. Which is great. I mean, at least with financial well-being, there's a bit of a roadmap, right? Absolutely. We know what to do. There are steps to take and there are steps to follow in order to save enough and then grow your money so that you have enough to do whatever it is you want to do. I want to talk about your work specifically with women and, and your research specifically on women. Because you know, yes, retirement is a big deal, but for women who live longer, it's a bigger deal because we've got to make our savings last longer. That means we have to plan smarter. If you visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney, you can schedule a free appointment with an advisor. And what that means is that if you don't have this plan that Maddie and I are talking about, 
you can start putting one together. You can get a fresh look at your finances and work with experts to help create a plan that will build and grow and protect and preserve your wealth so that whatever retirement looks like for you, you can find your way there. It is your money. Make it count. Get started at planefe.com slash hermoney and speak with an advisor today. I am talking with Maddie Dykwald, co-founder of AgeWave and Women Against Alzheimer's. So at the top of the show, Maddie, I laid out some pretty daunting statistics about how the pandemic has affected women and specifically women when it comes to retirement. What are the steps to take in order to regain the ground that we've lost? Well, I don't know if you're referring specifically to the financial side of things, but let me create a context for it. You just mentioned that women live longer than men, and today that's about six years longer than men. But men die quicker, but women get sicker. So what do we mean by that? Well, our health spans, the number of years we live in health and vitality, do not match our lifespans. And that's a problem. That's a problem not just for our health and vitality, but it's a problem. I mean, who's going to enjoy those extra years? By the way, it's 12 years of life on average that we're not experiencing a good health span. And that's a lot of time. Is that specifically for women, 12 years? That is right. It's less for men than it is for women. Wow. Yeah. That is a huge number of years. It is a huge number of years. And it's, you know, chronic degenerative diseases, uh, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, disability and pain, which, by the way, pain and arthritis and other inflammatory diseases more likely to happen to women than to men. So this is something we need to think about and plan for because not only is it unpleasant, and something we can do something about, even as we hit our 50s, 60s, and 70s, we can make changes. It also is very expensive, <laughs> not just for us individually, but for our families and for the society overall. So it's a real problem. In terms of looking for solutions, let me layer on one more complicating factor or what I think might be a complicating factor. Many women are staying single longer, either marrying later or not at all, or getting divorced, widowhood, and the rate of having children has gone down. Does that make dealing with all of these issues in later life more complicated and perhaps even more expensive? Yeah, well, let me answer that in two ways. First of all, there is a trend towards what we call solo aging, and solo agers need to be more mindful of how their aging is going to be long-term. So they can't just think about today, they've got to think about their future self as well and put together a network that might take the place of children. And by the way, just because you don't have kids doesn't mean you don't have family relationships. And today in our world, most people, many people, and we saw this from the results of our study, that people have expanded the definition of family. It may be your best friend, or it may be other people who are within your network, colleagues at work. I mean, it could be going a lot of different directions, but yes, they need to think about it more mindfully. But I would say that we all need to think about it more mindfully because, you know, I'll use myself as an example. You know, I'm married, I have two kids, which is great, but my son is about to move to China with his wife. My daughter lives in LA. If something were to happen to either my husband or me, I don't think we could count on them being here. We have to create our own network and our own action plan for long life that includes what happens if we have a health event. How have you charted your own personal course of growing older as a woman. How have you thought about all of these different 
issues that we've been talking about today. And look, I know you and Ken are both in your early 70s and you are going strong. You're, boy, you get a lot done every single day, week, month, and year. But what does retirement, when it eventually comes, look like for you? Okay, so I'm one of those people who thinks retirement needs to be retired. I don't think in general retirement is a healthy thing to do to stop all work-related activities. There's been studies that show that it affects your brain in negative ways. And I'm very conscious of the fact that I want to keep my brain healthy for the long term. Now, does that mean that you work 40 hours a week? No, it means that people are living more cyclic lives. They are taking work and they're taking the concept of retirement and they're mixing it up throughout the lifespan. So what does that look like? It looks like people going back to work when they're 40 or 60 or 80 in a new and different career that may be part-time or flex time. It means that people have a chance to reinvent themselves. And reinvention is a huge word. And I don't think we should minimize it at all, especially in this new retirement that we're experiencing. So this whole idea of retiring at a certain age, I don't buy into it. It may be good for some people, but having a sense of purpose is really essential. And maybe that sense of purpose is babysitting for your grandchildren. That's a great purpose. And that will keep your mind active and engaged. But I think we all need to develop a sense of purpose that is different than it might have been in our hardworking years. What's your advice for doing that? If you are thinking, yeah, I'm looking ahead and I can see a day coming down the road when I don't want to do the work that I'm doing right now, or I don't want to do as much of the work that I'm doing right now. How do you, and I think this is advice that can apply when you're 30, how do you find a purpose? How do you find a purpose that fits? It's a very big question, Jean. (laughs) I think we're all looking for purpose all the time. I think there's purpose with a big P and there's purpose with a little P. Purpose with a little P could be walking the dog, babysitting for your grandchildren, getting up in the morning and feeling like you have a reason to get out of bed. And that's important. Purpose with a big P is something that you feel passionate about and As you alluded to just a minute ago, even people in their 30s or 40s may never really develop that thing that they feel passionate about. Now, I feel passionate about almost everything I do, but that's how I approach what I do. (laughs) And that's just a mindset. And I would say that positive mindset, it's really something that I've learned to develop, and it has been correlated directly with having an impact on your longevity. In fact, positive impact on aging, it's been correlated directly with an extra seven to 10 years of life. Wow. That's incredible. I'm learning some important numbers today. I'm happier about this seven years of additional life than I am about the 12 years spent not feeling particularly well. Before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about your work with Alzheimer's. And we know that one of the first things that we start to see when cognition starts to be impaired is some Failure to manage your finances the way that you were once able to manage them, particularly for women, you said you want to keep your brain as sharp as possible. What do you do in order to do that? I mean, I play word games and I'm told that doesn't work at all. But what are the things that are important if the thought of losing your keys is the thing that really strikes fear? And it really does in me. One of the biggest learnings I've had in terms of this is to recognize the fact that what you do for your heart health also are, they're the same things that you would do for your brain health. And that's, to me, sort of the underpinnings of what I do. So for one thing, I exercise every day. Maybe it's just taking a walk, but I do something every single day to move my body. And that has 
been heavily correlated with improving brain cognition and also in terms of you know delaying or preventing cognitive decline. So that's a good thing to do. Eating what you put in your mouth. I mean, sugar is the killer. That's the one that everyone in the Alzheimer's space talks about. So if you can avoid eating sugar, that's a good thing. And there's other steps you can take in terms of diet, but if you just did that one thing, it would make a huge difference. Doing things for your brain, not necessarily word games, as you pointed out. If you do word games and you've never done them before, it's a great thing to do. But if you do them all the time, you're not creating new patterns in your brain and you're not teaching your brain synapses to grow. And that's what you want to do. So they say learning a new language, for instance, is a great thing to do to really improve your cognition uh, both short-term and long-term. So there are some real things that you can do. Getting a good night's sleep, and it's not just getting sleep, which they say seven to eight hours is ideal, but getting that REM sleep, so getting the deep sleep, that really makes a difference. And of course, the socialization that you pointed at before, that's a huge deal as well. Having a few go-to people that you can share your life with, that makes a difference in your brain cognition too. So these things all work together. Again, it's sort of like a holistic recipe for healthy aging. Maddie, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much for a great conversation. If our listeners want to learn more about you and about your work, where should they go? They should go to the AgeWave website, www.agewave.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Before we dive into our mailbag, a reminder that Her Money is grateful for the support of BCU. BCU is a credit union, great credit union that helps its members take control of their money using a variety of financial tools and resources. And BCU's passion is to empower people to discover financial freedom. They do this by providing caring support and services that create the value that you deserve. You can learn more at bcu.org. Catherine Tuggle joins me now. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. How are you doing on this day that you're aging? It's Catherine's birthday, by the way. Yes, I am aging. And honestly, I love conversations like these that are positive about aging, that are positive about longevity. I feel like on social media and pretty much everywhere, but especially on social media, I feel like everyone is filtering their faces and they're smoothing out their wrinkles and they're darkening or lightening their gray hairs. And it's so refreshing to hear powerful women having a conversation about the positives of aging and owning your age and owning your space and owning your power and your accomplishments when you do reach an age, because aging is a beautiful gift that not all of us are afforded. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And again, no judgment if you want to color your hair and if you want to smooth your wrinkles, right? I do both of those things and I'm not giving either of them up so quickly. But I do think you're right that talking about the pluses of aging is a wonderful thing to do. I'm very inspired. Mika Brzezinski, who's been on the show a few times, just released her latest list of 50, over 50, 50 women over the age of 50 who are doing phenomenal things. And it's it's a terrific list. It's it's a list where you want to be in their company because they they are cool and interesting and have a lot to teach us. We should just go down that list and get all these women on the podcast. I think you're right. I think it's a great direction to go in, which is not to say that we need to talk about that all the time. But I think even keeping in mind what Maddie was saying about the fact that we're always aging. You know, you're different at 30 than you were at 20, than you will be at 40. Every stage of life brings new challenges, but also new bravery, new adventures, new obstacles, and new ways to feel good once you've conquered them. So it's just a continuum. Yeah. And I feel like younger women benefit just as much from the narrative of what it is like to get older because everybody, even in your 20s, I think you want to see 
that you're not going to be put out to pasture just because you turn 60 or just because you turn 70 or (laughs) just because you turn 80. (laughs) No, it's true because I think that these are a lot of the messages that young girls are getting is that there is some sort of a deadline by which you must accomplish everything and do everything and be the person that you want to be. And the truth is you can keep accomplishing things and keep reinventing yourself at every age. It doesn't stop. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely, 100%. When you said 60, I swallowed hard because that's not very far away from me. But you know what? It's just a number. When you're 20, 60 seems ancient. That's true. (laughs) That is true. And our 23-year-old assistant producer is smiling at that. So maybe it does seem ancient. Before we dig ourselves into a big hole here, let's answer some questions. Love that. Thank you for throwing me that lifeline, Jean. (laughs) (laughs) Our first question today comes from Kathy. She writes, Hello, I listen every week, including to the bonus podcasts, and I'm always impressed with the questions listeners submit. I want to join that group. I recently left my employer and I have a traditional pension plan. They sent me materials to review to decide if I want to, one, defer my pension payout, two, take a lump sum, or three, annuitize the payout. I'll be 54 in December. I wasn't at this employer very long, so the amounts are as follows. 43000 for the lump sum or a 50% joint and survivor annuity of 183 a month to me now and $65 to my husband upon my death. We have a solid financial plan that has me retiring next year at 55. The plan does illustrate the 50% joint and survivor annuity. That relatively small amount of monthly income is not impactful to our plan. I'm wondering what the best move to make is. Since we don't need this lump sum or annuity income now, should I defer? Or should I take the lump sum and invest it to get a better return? Investing right now is scary. We do have a financial planner, but I wanted to get the Her Money team's take on this. I like getting more than one perspective. Keep up the great work. Well, this is a very interesting question. Thank you so much for writing. Let's just point out the fact that you are, you're fortunate to have the option to add a pension to the money that you've got for retirement. Not everybody does. In fact, I think it's only about 17% of people in the country have a pension these days other than social security. And what an appropriate show for this question, since we've been talking about Retirement All Show and you're retiring next year. I ran a few very quick numbers. And just for comparison's sake, if you took the $183 a month and you took it for 30 years, in 30 years, you'd be 84. That's very, very possible. You would have about $65,000 coming in total over those stream of payments compared with the $43,000 lump sum. If you took the $43,000 and let's say that you invested it at a very conservative rate of return, because as you point out, investing is scary right now. Let's say you put it away and earn 6% on that money. In 30 years, you would have $250,000 almost. That is a lot more than both $43,000 and $65,000. And if you got 8% on that money, which by the way is about the average return that the Dow Jones Industrial Average has gotten since its inception, you would have in 30 years... Uh, closer to $450,000. So a lot of money just by taking the lump sum and letting the money grow. And that is if you did it yourself, right? If you were not paying fees on that, if you were not paying commissions on that, if you just took the money and you plunked it into some sort of a retirement account, which you still could do, maybe a Roth IRA, and you let it grow. You put it to work and you just let it grow. And of course, the numbers could be anywhere in between. I actually think that I'm looking at this two ways. So the first thing I think, especially based on our conversation with Maddie Dykewald, is that you are very likely to outlive your husband unless there is some health information that we 
don't know about you or about him, the chances that you will outlive him are pretty significant. And because you don't need the money, I'm wondering why you're bothering to run this annuity as a joint and survivor annuity. I'd run it just on your life. If you are looking at this and you're saying, I don't need it now. We're not going to need it later. This is money that we can use. This is icing on the retirement cake. Then I would try to grab as much icing as I possibly can. And so if you're going to structure it as an annuity, I wouldn't do it as joint and survivor. I would just structure it on your life, which is going to boost the $183 to be something greater than 183. I don't have the illustration, so I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. If you're inclined to invest the money, even though it is a little bit scary right now, I would pick a return like I did by just sort of plugging the numbers into a simple calculator and see what you think it can grow to. And then I would compare that to the deferred payout down the road. What does it look like if you leave the money in the pension to grow versus if you take the money out of the pension in order to grow it? See where you get the better return and and just do that. Of the three options, I probably would not annuitize at this point just because you don't have to because it's not going to be meaningful to your life. But think about the opportunity for a bigger chunk of money down the road and what you might be able to do with that. Maybe that is support for a charity that you care an awful lot about. Maybe it's support for a family member. Maybe it's something else, but it just allows you to kick the can down the road. What I suspect is that if you start getting a check for $183 every single month, it's just going to run through your fingers and it's not going to be meaningful at all. So that's my two cents. Good advice. Yeah, I didn't think about it in terms of $183 a month. That definitely seems like mad money. It's not even grocery money these days. It's not. I mean, it is for some people, but no, it's not a lot of money. It's also, she doesn't need it. So let's make more of it until she finds something that she wants, if not needs, to use it for. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Our next question today comes to us from Annie. She writes, Hi, Jeannie Catherine. I love listening to the podcast and the wide variety of topics and questions you address. My team is being reduced by about two-thirds, and I'm part of the group making the cut. I'll now be key to training the outsourced team while my current teammates drop off into their new roles. I'm grateful to keep my position and I'm trying to stay positive, but the upcoming months are going to be really challenging. Looking further ahead is a great unknown. How do I ask to be compensated for the additional workload when most of the team is being laid off for budgetary reasons? I appreciate any insight you have on being on the good side of a layoff and how to proceed with grace while also knowing my value to the organization. Thanks so much. Oh, great question, Annie. And you're right, a challenging question. I think the biggest challenge here, if I were being asked to take on your role, is that you are keeping your job while you will be working with a lot of people who will not be keeping theirs. And I just think emotionally that is a very challenging position to be in every day. I love that you ask about proceeding with grace because I think it's exactly what I think people on the other side are going to be looking for. They're going to be looking for a little grace. And so if you bring that to the table, it's the equivalent of bringing empathy. And that is going to be in short supply. So good on you for looking at it that way. At the same time, you're being asked to do another job. You are being asked to do a different job than you have now, and you should be compensated for that job. So step one is to figure out what that salary should be. What do similar jobs in your market pay with your level of experience and with the amount of time and the investment that they are asking from you. So I would do some homework, figure out exactly or or if there's some sort of a range that you can grab onto in order to frame your ask 
when you go to have the discussion with your employer about the fact that you, for this new work that they're asking you to do, you should be fairly compensated. I would look within your own company as well. If there is a benefits department, does that benefits department have ranges of salaries into which you think you fit at this point? And then I'd be very candid with your employer about the fact that you are grateful to still have a job, but that they are asking you to do something that is quite challenging and more demanding than the job that you had before and that this job deserves X, Y, and Z in terms of compensation. And I would just put it out there. I would not be apologetic. I would express your feelings that you are the right person for this job, that you are bringing the skill set that they knew you would bring to this job, that they put you there for a reason. They clearly want you there. And this is how much you believe you deserve to be paid for it. And then I'd be quiet and see what they come back with. They may tell you, because this is coming right after a round of layoffs, that they don't have budget for this. I would not be surprised if that is their answer. But then I would get a commitment for when you can have the next conversation. Can we revisit this in three months? Can we revisit this in six months? When can we revisit that? Put that in your calendar and don't forget to tee it up again. Last thing, if the conversation doesn't go as well as you hope it went, I'd be looking for a job. I think this is a company that's clearly having trouble. They're reducing your team not by a couple of people, they're reducing it by two-thirds. That's a significant cut. Just because they want to keep you doesn't mean you have to stay. So I would be out looking for other opportunities just in case there's another round of layoffs that happen sooner than you expect. And do you think she should go in now to make her case? Or do you think she should wait and maybe do the work for a few months and then present them with a case where she says, look, I'm working 65 hours a week now, and this is unsustainable? Like, I'm curious if there's it's better to address head on or wait. I, I think you could do either one. You definitely have a stronger case if you wait a couple of months and you are indeed working much harder or many more hours than you were working before. You've also given yourself a little bit of time to get past the layoff. And so maybe the company has turned a corner. If you can wait for a couple of months to give yourself the experience of doing the job, that's not necessarily a bad thing to do. In fact, I think it's probably a good thing to do. What do you think, Catherine? I don't know. I see the merit in both, right? Because I think if the company is doing worse in a couple of months, they might be more likely to say no. But I actually think her case of saying, I worked 63.5 hours last week doing all these other people's jobs, I find that more compelling. I find it compelling too, but I also think it seems like based on her letter, they are asking her to manage these people who are rolling out of the company. They clearly need her to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's a big ask. And so if I'm perceiving that right, Annie, I think you could actually do it either way. Interesting. Let us know what happens, Annie, and good luck. Good luck. Thanks, Jean. Thanks, Catherine. And in today's Thrive, we're talking about tips for getting your small business off the ground. Before you own a restaurant, work in a restaurant. This is one of my favorite lines and pieces of advice. It comes from Carrie Diamond, founder and editor of Cherry Bomb Magazine and host of its popular podcast, I recently met with Carrie as well as Lisa Janae, founder of the multimedia production company Terra Visuals, for a panel conversation on women starting their own businesses. This was an event that was organized by our partner, Citizens Bank, and we gathered in October in celebration of National Women's Small Business Month, as well as Citizens' expansion into New York, and we sat down with an audience of female entrepreneurs all working to make their small businesses a success. 
Although there are many different paths that an entrepreneurial journey can take, I love hearing about the lessons learned along the way, and I'm here to share with you the biggest takeaways from that conversation. Number one, be scrappy and bold. Diamond credits her naivete as a reason for Cherry Bomb's early success. She told us, if you're scrappy enough, you can find a way to make money. I agree. For Janae, it was about having the courage to take risks and to ask for what she needed. Surprisingly, many people, including those willing to lend her expensive video equipment, said yes. Next, harness or create your community. Leveraging your network is a key ingredient for finding your footing, but you do not have to do it alone. For Diamond, the way that women have shown up to help other women in the food world has been inspiring and profitable. Leaning on that community also means keeping good relationships with people from your past, not burning bridges when going after a passion project, and giving as much notice as you can before leaving a company to pursue your dream. Last, but certainly not least, we tackled a big question. Do you need to spend money in order to make money? It depends. For Diamond's journey with Cherry Bomb, the answer was yes. But for Janae with Terra Visuals, the answer was no. She self-funded to start and avoided debt by tapping her community for resources right out of the gate. If you'd like to hear more about this question and other strategies for small business owners, you can find the full conversation linked in this episode's show notes. And a big thank you to Citizens for hosting the fantastic evening. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Maddie Dykdwald for showing us how to grow older with purpose, happiness, and financial security. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.